Today, we're continuing in our Acts series. We're in Acts chapter 5. We're going to be walking through the first 11 verses of chapter 5. And we're just going to go ahead and jump right into the passage. It reads, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is the price you and Ananias got for the land? Is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Just happens to be Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 this week. I remember when we were laying out this... um, study and we were planning on the passages we were going to talk through, there was a moment where I sat with Shaq and I was like, are we really going to do this one? And we were like, we really should. We should not like try to run from hard ones. We should not try to hide the hard ones. And if we get to the hard ones and we're not exactly sure what they're saying, it's actually okay to stand in front of our church and say, we're not exactly sure what's happening in some of these. So as we walk through this, I'm going to be really transparent about what we feel like we, we know and understand and what we don't know and understand. And it's worth saying as we get to it that every single resource I have looked at over the past and like knowing that this passage was coming, I have been preparing for over a month. Every resource I've looked at, every theologian, they have different ideas as to why Ananias and Sapphira had to die. There's not even a consensus about why. There's conjectures and ideas and thoughts, but no clear consensus. So we're going to try to make sense of the passage. We're going to try to talk about what we can know about it and then what in it is for us today. So in verses 1 and 2, Luke introduces us to Ananias and Sapphira. They are the first married couple that we hear about in the book of Acts. And Luke tells us that they also sold a piece of property. 
That word also is a signifier that we're supposed to connect this story to a very brief story that Luke told at the end of Acts chapter 4 in verses 36 and 37. It's two verses that were tacked on to the last passage we talked about where Luke was describing the way that the early church community sold pieces of land and property and extra possessions so that they could use the proceeds from those sales until there was no needy persons left among them. That story that Luke told, it's two verses, and it reads like this. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. We're supposed to read and hear the story about Ananias and Sapphira in the context of this brief story about Barnabas. A story, about, a story where Barnabas sells an extra field that he owns and brings the proceeds to the apostles so that they can redistribute that money to those in need. Ananias and Sapphira also have a field they owned, and they too sell it. But Luke also tells us in verse 2 that with his wife's full knowledge, Ananias kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Together, Ananias and Sapphira develop a plan to sell their extra field, just like Barnabas, just like other members of their community had been doing. But apparently, unlike Barnabas and the other members of the community, Ananias and Sapphira have decided to keep some of the proceeds for themselves. And at first glance, shouldn't they be able to do this if they want? Shouldn't they be able to make the decision to sell their property and if they so desire to keep some of that, some of the proceeds from that sale, shouldn't they be able to say, we want to keep a little bit of this for ourselves? Peter acknowledges that reality in verses 3 and 4. Peter acknowledges that they were in complete and total control of what happened with the proceeds from the sale of this land. Peter said, Ananias, How is it Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not just lied to human beings, but to God. What Peter appears to be saying is that he's he's looking at Ananias and saying, how could you lie to the Holy Spirit? The land belonged to you, Ananias. After you sold it, the money belonged to you. You could have done whatever you wanted with the proceeds of the sale. But what Ananias did was concoct a plan to sell his field, then withhold some of the proceeds of the sale for himself and his wife, and then took what was left to the apostles and declared publicly, this is everything. And he worked out this plan in partnership with Sapphira. She was complicit in her husband's deceit. And Peter makes it clear Ananias wasn't just lying to Peter. He was apparently also lying to the Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to appear as generous as Barnabas. They wanted to appear as generous as every other person in the early church who had sold possessions and used the proceeds to meet the needs of other people. 
They wanted to be well thought of and well regarded. They wanted to be esteemed for their act of sacrificial generosity. They wanted a place of honor in the community. They sought to look righteous without being righteous. And they sought to look just without having to be just. And because they wanted the honor and the position, but also to be able to have some of the money for themselves, they deceived Peter and the Holy Spirit. They attempted to deceive Peter and the Holy Spirit because their desire for human praise was more important than faithfulness to God. Now, it's worth noting that Peter clearly identifies the origins of Ananias and Sapphira's deceitful plan, Satan. Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? Satan enters into Ananias' heart, fills it, and then Ananias begins formulating a plan, an intentional plan to deceive an entire body of believers, the apostles, and according to Peter, also the Holy Spirit. He builds a plan, then enlists his wife in that plan, and then he and Sapphira carry out that plan. And while Luke is clear that the origin of their plan is Satan, he's also clear that they are responsible for actually carrying it out. The original idea could have been planted by Satan, but they're responsible for actually having acted on it. They're liable then for their choices, decisions, and actions, which is why it seems Luke tells us in verses 10 through 11 that Ananias and Sapphira both fall dead. It is an abrupt end to their story. Even though they intended to lie to the Holy Spirit, even though they intended to deceive the whole community of believers, even though they built a plan that would make them look honorable and worthy of positions of leadership and influence and authority without actually being people with that character, if we're honest, doesn't it seem a little bit like a harsh and unnecessary end to their lives? It seems a little harsh. It seems unnecessary. And Luke ends the passage by simply saying, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So there's a lot to process and work through in this story. And I think to just name it, there are aspects of it that for some of us might be pretty triggering. Like did Ananias and Sapphira really need to die? Did they really need to die? Sure, they committed a sin. Sure, they wanted to posture themselves in front of a congregation of people in one way without actually being those people. They lied to Peter, and according to Peter, they lied to the Holy Spirit. But why do they need to die immediately? Why did God decide that needed to happen? 
I don't know. I can't explain it. There weren't even two of the seven resources I read that agreed. It stood out to me that every one of the resources I read attempted to describe it and sound definitive in it. That these particular theologians had figured out why. But again, none of them had the same reason. I mean, we, we could, if we wanted to, try and compare lying to the Holy Spirit to a story in Exodus chapter 19 when God instructs the Israelites to not touch Mount Sinai or they'll be put to death. There's a story in Numbers chapter 4 where the Israelites are, not, are told not to touch the Ark of the Covenant or they'll die. And then someone touches the Ark of the Covenant and dies. Or there's a story in Joshua chapter 7 about a man named Achan where he withholds items of value for himself and is then killed for his deception. But honestly, in my opinion, none of those stories perfectly overlay this one. There's significant differences in each of those stories from the one we're looking at today. And so if it's okay with you, I'm not going to try and explain away Ananias and Sapphira's death. I'm not going to try to make it palatable. And maybe, maybe this is for me to share, and maybe some of you need to hear it. I've stopped feeling the need to read stories like this and defend God. I've come to recognize that he's pretty capable of defending himself. My role is to come to him and ask him questions, to express my doubts and frustrations, to be honest about the places where I'm just really confused and maybe even angry. We can bring questions to him, church. We can bring anger and confusion. We can bring doubts, and he receives it. And I believe if we're patient and humble, he will eventually respond to us. So I don't want to ignore the hard parts of this story. I don't want to rush past them and pretend they're not there. What I am saying is that I don't have answers to them, to why they're there. And so even though I know this story could potentially be triggering to some of us, I do think there are actually some things in here that are useful for us. And so for the rest of our conversation, I'd like to try to focus on that. The things that I think are in this story that we can take and work through and apply to our lives if we're going to continue on the journey of trying to become more like Jesus as individual people, but also as a church. So, I think it all comes together in this one sentence. Our righteousness impacts our witness. Our righteousness impacts our witness. Now, what do we mean by righteousness? 
Because that's oftentimes a word where we hear people say like, oh, you're so self-righteous, and it's this negative term. The word as it's used throughout the Old and New Testaments, it means the quality, state, or characteristic of being in the right. Righteousness is an attribute that is attributed to God's being. When we think about righteousness, we are to think of God's good, right, and just character his actions, and his judgments. We're supposed to recognize that God's righteousness is most fully evidenced in Jesus. And when we read through the Gospels and see the way Jesus lived, loved, acted, forgave, taught, healed, sacrificed, and challenged abusive power systems and structures and leaders, we see God's righteousness on full display. And we understand that Jesus' disciples, we understand, we know, we've talked about this before. Jesus' disciples are to spend time with Jesus, learn his teachings, take on his character and ways, and then live out his kingdom mission. Righteousness, therefore, characterizes the type of life Jesus' disciples are supposed to live. And for those of us who seek to be disciples of Jesus, we are to imitate him, which means taking on his character and ways and becoming righteous as Jesus is righteous. You might be familiar with language in this Bible where it says that Jesus imparts to those who follow him his own righteousness. So when I say that our righteousness impacts our witness, what I'm saying is that the way we imitate Jesus impacts our witness. The ways that we imitate Jesus in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our relationships, the way we imitate Jesus everywhere we go impacts our witness. And to bring this back to Ananias and Sapphira's story, Jesus knows Satan is lurking, ready and waiting to fill people's hearts. And Jesus shows us that in him and through him, Satan can be resisted. Jesus is a truth teller, not someone who speaks lies and deceives people. Jesus isn't someone who seeks to look good without doing the work of becoming good. And Jesus isn't looking to appear good just so he can have a seat of honor in a community. In Jesus' life, we see the opposite of Ananias and Sapphira's actions. Now, what do we mean by witness? we're going to say the way we imitate Jesus impacts our witness, what does it mean? What do we mean by witness? Well, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we hear Jesus giving instructions to his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit before they start trying to live out at Jesus' kingdom mission. Jesus says this in Acts 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The apostles will be people who bear witness about Jesus in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that word witness carries with it the sense of the words testimony and record. In other words, everywhere the apostles will go, their lives, their way of being will be a living testimony or record of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, power, and love. So to bring all this together, the way we imitate Jesus 
impacts our testimony to the world about Jesus. And if I'm honest, I think we want to believe that we can impact our neighborhoods for Jesus without having to do the hard work of becoming like Jesus. We want to believe we're capable of playing a role in the transformation of our communities without actually having to do the hard work of imitating Jesus. I think we're a little bit more like Ananias and Sapphira than we might want to admit at first. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to look good without doing good. They wanted to look good without doing the work of becoming good. They wanted to look good and be given a place of honor and leadership without having to become a disciple. Years ago, um, a mentor of mine asked me to read a book titled Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins We Tolerate, and it was written by Jerry Bridges. To be honest, I was really frustrated when he handed me this book. We had spent like a year together, and he told me we were going like, to read a book together, and he was going to pick the book, which... I don't know, this is probably going to make me sound immature, I apologize for this, but he was in his 70s and I was just like, what book are you going to pick? And he picked one that, like, he handed it to me and I was like, this does feel like a book that someone in their 70s would read, not somebody who's like 29 years old. Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. Like, we should be talking about hard theological things. We should be working, about deep, working through deep cultural issues. We should be trying to make sense of the way that Jesus speaks to all of these hard and realities in our world today. And you want me to read a book about respectable sins? And it was a moment over the course of the few months that we read through this book where the, my mentor... He kept pointing back to me. He's like, you could be the best theologian in the world, but if your character is rotten, you're not going to lead anybody. You could, have the best, you could be the best thinker on all these social issues. But if your life's a mess, who's going to follow you? You'll be able to trick people for a little while, but you'll get found out. In the book, there were things like, uh, so Bridges in the book, he names things like unthankfulness, discontentment. Like seriously, the first chapter that dealt with any actual sin according to Bridges was unthankfulness. And I was like, this is why I don't want to read this book. (laughs) This doesn't feel like real stuff. How many of us think of that as a sin? Discontentment, pride, selfishness, lack of self-control. How many of us think of that as a sin? Impatience, irritability. I'm poking anybody? Anger, envy, judgmentalism, jealousy, and a harsh tongue. Those are the things that Bridges identified as respectable sins. 
His thesis is that as Christians, we tolerate all of these sins and make excuses for them. In fact, we make excuses in a way that permits them. Oftentimes in settings, we like a prideful leader, somebody who's strong, sure of their thoughts. They've done a lot and accomplished a lot. They're allowed to be prideful. No, they're not. Someone might look at me and say, look, I understand that sometimes you lack self-control. You've got five kids. It's okay, you're allowed to. No, I'm not. And that list from Bridges, it doesn't even include things like deceitfulness, lust, greed, hypocrisy, or sexual immorality. We didn't even get to those ones yet. Reading that book helped me realize the seriousness of sin of any kind. It helped me to realize that to be like Jesus, I had to do the work of being a disciple. We want to be part of transforming a community and a city. But we're so much more like Ananias and Sapphira than we want to admit. There's deceit in our hearts. There's anger and irritability and pride. Sometimes I wonder if in order to do the good work out there, we have to do the good work in here. And I'm not saying, right, like, well, if everybody just, if we just get enough Christian, enough people saved, then the world will get better. No, we need to, like, disciple people as they are becoming like Christ on how their faith meets the world. I think, too, lots of us have been wounded in Christian spaces in particular by leaders whose sin has been tolerated or permitted. Many of us have been wounded directly by it. Our righteousness impacts our witness. The way we imitate Jesus impacts the testimony we offer to the world about who he is. What if the extent to which we imitate Jesus is the extent to which we impact our neighborhoods? What if it works like an if-then statement in an Excel spreadsheet? Sorry, that's my kind of language. You want to find a quick way to my heart, send me an email with data in the subject line and some conditional formatting in that spreadsheet. If we imitate Jesus well, then we can impact our neighborhoods. Imagine what happens to the early church's public witness if people are allowed to deceive one another, the apostles and the Holy Spirit, and then be placed into positions of leadership. That's what Ananias and Sapphira were going for. 
in a few chapters, Barnabas is going to get elevated to a position of significant leadership in the early church. Ananias and Sapphira were shooting for that too. Imagine what happens to the early church if people with that character get to a position of significant leadership. Does the early church still have the impact it does through the Roman Empire if sin is allowed to run rampant in their community? Do they have the impact in the Roman Empire if people who are deceitful become leaders? Who would be drawn into a community that embodies the empire more than the kingdom? Who would be drawn into the church if the church looked like the empire. I read a book several years ago. It's called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. It's by Ronald Sider. I recommend that. Both of these books I recommend. Respectable Sins and then The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience by Ronald Sider. In that book, Sider basically points out the hypocrisy of the evangelical church in America. In that book, he points out things like, this is a church across the country that talks about and takes this position of being anti-abortion, but the abortion rate is significantly higher in evangelical churches than in the general population. It's just one of the things that he names that the pockets of the evangelical church will talk about how evil divorce is, and yet the rate of divorce in evangelical churches is so much higher than the rest of the general population. You basically like see what significant social position the evangelical church takes and just assume that they're actually worse at it than the rest of the world. And yet this week, data came out about how over the past, like the Southern Baptist Church last year lost over a million members. Mainline Presbyterian churches, I think PCUSA, which once had like 25 years ago had, and I might get some of the dates wrong, so I'm sorry, but the PCUSA church had over 30 million people in it at the end of the 70s and today has about 3 million people in it. Like, just to ask the question that we've been asking, who wants to join a church that looks like the rest of the world? Who wants to join a community that says, come be with us, we have the good news, and we're as hypocritical as the rest of the world, if not more so? Our righteousness impacts our witness, and we that. It's just hard. I mean, it's hard. I'm not saying the church is supposed to be a place that's filled with perfect people. The church, even this church, is intended to be a place where people who sin, where people who are weary, broken, discouraged, and beaten down can come to find healing, hope, care, and Jesus. It's a community of people who are human and 
prone to wander from our Savior. Between this story of Ananias and Sapphira and another story we're going to get to in a few chapters, we're going to see that the early church is imperfect. Luke doesn't seem to have any interest in portraying the early church as being perfect. There are no perfect churches, not even the first one. We shouldn't be striving for perfection, but we should be taking seriously our own sin and hypocrisy. We should be seeking to root it out of our individual and corporate lives rather than just shrugging our shoulders and moving on, tolerant and indifferent about it. So right now, just a quick moment, because this is something I've just, I've learned in my own life, but surely every one of us in the space right now. We know what our sins are. They're not mysteries to us. Some of them maybe, but a lot of them know. If you were to just quietly think to yourself right now, what is one area of your life where you know you're missing the mark? hold that for a moment. And I want you to be gracious with yourself, but also honest. Have you really done the work of rooting out that sin? Have you really fought to overcome it? Or are you content to manage it? You can mostly keep it hidden. I want to end by sharing a passage from a letter written by the Apostle John. It's recorded in the New Testament. He writes, But you know that Jesus appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Do not receive those words as a condemnation. Receive them as encouragement. We follow a Savior who gives us in himself everything we need to honestly face our sin, name it, and work through it to overcome it. The work of becoming like Jesus is hard, good work. The work of becoming righteous as Jesus is righteous is the lifelong work of being a disciple. You may have grown up in church settings that would refer to that as sanctification. You don't snap your fingers and become a sanctified person. It is a lifelong, ongoing process. And we follow a Savior who loves to walk with us on that journey and through that process. We need to take the work of becoming like Jesus seriously because our righteousness impacts our witness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words, even the hard stories, even aspects of stories that we can't explain or make sense of. 
There's still good things for us in them. Thank you for this story. Thank you for the challenge to be a people who follow after you and take the sin in our lives seriously, who recognize that just because there is always more grace, we shouldn't take advantage of it. So convict us and teach us, Father, that we might become ever more like Jesus. We pray in your son's name. Amen.